At WakeMed MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about every day of the year. Primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org. If you're new to the podcast, go back and start at episode one. It will make a lot more sense. October 6, 1993. Michael Jordan sits on a basketball court in the Chicago Bulls training facility in Deerfield, Illinois. He's at a table with his wife, Juanita, and Bulls owner, Jerry Reinsdorf. Reporters, NBA officials, and Bulls teammates fill the room, waiting for Michael to speak. There's a spray of microphones in front of him. He leans into them. I'm very solid with my decision of not to uh, play the the game of basketball uh, in the NBA. The rumors are true. The greatest player to ever pick up a basketball is leaving the game in his prime. He's just 30 years old. Four months ago, he led the Bulls to their first three-peat, their third NBA championship in a row. But I've always stressed to people that have known me and the media that has followed me that when I lose uh, the sense of motivation and the sense of to prove something as a basketball player, uh, it's time for me to move away from the game of basketball. A lot has happened to Michael in the last four months. Word was going around that the NBA was investigating his gambling. There were even rumors he might be kicked out of the league. And then his father was murdered. My success has been as much their success. My family's been a part of that. My wife, my father, who, as everyone knows, has, uh, has left us. Uh, I think what he made me realize was how short life is. Uh, and that was a an era that I had to look at. You know, how quickly something could end so, so, uh, so quickly. And so innocently. Michael's retirement left people dumbfounded. They didn't buy it. There was something off about the whole thing. Why retire now in his prime from the game he loved? It didn't add up. He had barely spoken about his father's death since the murder. They hadn't reported him missing in the first place. And now this, this sudden exit from basketball. And in the absence of real answers, people started making things up. Conspiracy theories linking all these things together. Conspiracy theories that dogged the James Jordan murder case from the very beginning. From WRAL Studios, this is Follow the Truth, the story of the James Jordan murder the man who says he didn't do it. I'm Amanda Lamb. And in local news, the Designery of North Raleigh is holding a grand opening event at noon on May 16th. Please stop by and join the party. I'm Dana Merrill, the owner of the Designery. I am True Merrill. I am the project manager. The Designery Grand Opening, we're scheduled to open May 16th 
into our grand opening party then. Uh, we're going to be catering some food, we're doing some giveaways, we have a VR headset, an Echo Show, some kitchen gadgets, and some fancy knives. 12 to 2 p.m. Please stop by our showroom, 3030 Wake Forest Road. That's The Designery at thedesignery.com. Did you know that your unused medications could end up in the wrong hands? It's important to keep your medication secure in a locked location, such as a locking box or locking cabinet. When it's time to dispose of them, safety and properly dispose of old, expired, or unused meds by using an at-home disposal product or a medication disposal box in your community. Don't miss out on medication take-back events happening near you. Don't let anyone take what's yours. Lock your meds. Be aware. Don't share. Learn more at lockyourmeds.org nc. Daniel Green and Larry Demery were charged with James Jordan's murder in August of 1993, but the case wouldn't go to trial until January of 1996. And in those two and a half years, while the case shuffled along, mostly out of the public eye, well, it created a vacuum, a vacuum people filled with their own theories about what happened and how. And no matter what was said when the case got to trial, Nothing could ever live up to the grand conspiracies concocted in the meantime. And that skepticism for how things really went down, it's never gone away. And almost all of those conspiracies were born out of what people knew and what they didn't know about the Jordan family. Today, in the era of social media celebrities and reality stars, being famous doesn't mean what it once did. That's why when you tell someone about this story, it's hard to articulate just how iconic Michael Jordan was in 1993. He was everywhere, from the basketball court to the Nike store. He even had his own song. He won every award you can imagine and the hearts of lots of fans along the way. Not even the great winds of Chicago can bring Michael Jordan down. He has taken the city by storm, captured warm places in the hearts of Chicago's often cold fans. He's a wee as key. He brought the Bulls back to life. He's pretty cool. He puts on a show for everybody. But his influence wasn't just confined to the court. As powerful as Michael Jordan, the athlete, was, Michael Jordan, the brand, was something else altogether. Jordan's agents have selected a new world for Michael to conquer, Madison Avenue. Nike even used Jordan's supernova status in their marketing. What if my name wasn't in lights? What if my face wasn't on TV every other second? What if there wasn't a crowd around every corner? What if I was just a basketball player? Can you imagine it? I can. And Michael's dad, James, was always there in Michael's life, every step of the way. We went to a, one of Michael's games or one of Larry's games. We took the whole family, and uh, it got to be a family affair then, and I think it has remained a family affair, you know, right on up through the years. James was the guy behind the guy, always in the background, sitting in the stands, cheering on his son. But thanks to Michael, James did get his own 15 minutes of fame from time to time. They even made an underwear ad together. Michael, are these your hands? Mm-hmm. Son, is there a reason why you wear them? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Think mom would like me in these? 
Maybe. The famous son, a proud father. But there was a lot more to the man than his relationship with Michael. Born in Wallace, North Carolina, James Raymond Jordan Sr. was the son of sharecroppers, a hard-scrabble upbringing that prepared him for a stint in the Air Force. In 1957, he married his high school sweetheart, Dolores, and the two started a family. They would go on to have five kids together, three boys and two girls. Michael was the youngest boy. James was a sports fanatic when he was a kid, especially baseball, and almost went pro. So it was only natural for him to encourage his two youngest sons, Michael and Larry, to play sports. Even if he never made it to the big leagues himself, he seemed content to experience it through his kids. Most of all, James Jordan was proud of his son. He was thrilled to be part of the magic of Michael. I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be a part of it. You ever think of that? I'm lucky to be a part of what he is, what he stands for, and what he's doing right now. At the dedication of the Michael Jordan section of I-40, James spoke of the work ethic he tried to instill in his son. Hard work and dedication, be it young or old, black or white, will get you someplace. Thank you. But while Michael was up in Chicago perfecting his signature one-handed slam dunk, James got into trouble with the law. Mr. Jordan had been arrested and um, was subsequently convicted in, in Wilmington. Former District Attorney Johnson Brett. With um, being involved in a kickback scheme at the uh, plant where he worked, and then ultimately he was charged with fraud. James Jordan pleaded guilty to accepting a $7,000 kickback from a private contractor while he was employed at GE in Wilmington. Jordan received a suspended sentence, probation, and a $1,000 fine. This case is why the state had James's fingerprints on file when they later identified his body. He was also in the FBI system. As a young man, he was charged with burglary in New York. We reached out to several members of the Jordan family for this podcast, including Michael Jordan. None chose to participate. The Jordans have been notoriously tight-lipped about a lot of things over the years. And here, at this moment of intense scrutiny, the public had a lot of questions and no one to answer them. So there's not really much more we know about James Jordan as a person independent of his son, separate from the lore that has become Michael Jordan's story. Because most people saw James through his connection to Michael, his death was equally connected to the basketball star, for better or for worse through questions about debts, gambling, even the mafia. That's coming up after the break. At WakeMed MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about every day of the year primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot we don't know about the night James Jordan went missing or the weeks that passed before his body was found. But here are the facts we do have. On July 22, 1993, James had gone to Wilmington to attend the funeral of a former coworker. When the service was over, James went back to the widow's house with some friends. They had dinner and a few drinks. The toxicology report done after his death found James likely still had a good amount of alcohol in his system when he died. He left the friends shortly after midnight, driving back toward his home in Charlotte. It's usually about a three and a half hour trip, but he didn't make it that far. Investigators believe Jordan stopped about an hour into his drive to take a rest. They say he parked the Lexus on an access road between Interstate 95 and Highway 74 in Lumberton, North Carolina, and it's here, they say, his final moments played out. Of course, no one knew this at the time. The next day, James was expected in Chicago to attend a golf tournament with Michael. There was a driver who was supposed to pick him up at the airport, and when he didn't arrive, um, he waited and then returned to where the tournament was being, golf tournament was being held, and said, you know, Mr. Jordan was a no-show. The family, I don't really think had that much concern, but when they could not reach him, um, what resulted was Michael's security team started their own investigation. They did not report him missing um, in the sense that they contacted any local law enforcement agency. It wasn't until the car was found in early August that the family began working with police or filed any kind of official missing person report. It's this period of time the weeks when James was missing but the family didn't tell authorities that has remained a mystery even to this day. It's hard to speculate, and that's one of those unanswered questions that I think gives a lot of people pause. This is journalist Dan Wiederer. He wrote an article for the Chicago Tribune about the case on the 25th anniversary of James Jordan's murder. How uh, a man so beloved by his family, a man with so many children, would let him be missing for three weeks without reporting to authorities that he was not around, that he was missing, and that his 57th birthday would come and go without anyone knowing where he is. James's past, the family issues, legal troubles, it all wove together during the investigation as the public tried to explain his family's secrecy by saying it was proof something much bigger was going on. It gave birth to a slew of conspiracy theories, most of them were completely unfounded, with people insisting things like James was never really killed, that he faked his death to avoid more legal troubles or to get off the hook for financial problems in his business. Some people even claimed they saw James driving around Lumberton in the days following his supposed death. Though, why would he go through the trouble of pretending to die only to walk around in public days later? That's never been explained. 
Other theories, though, had just enough truth in them to stick around for a while. Mark Roberts was a reporter for WREL back in the 90s. He covered the James Jordan murder case when all these conspiracies started flying around. There was already conspiracy theories working up, said he had gambling debts or something like that. There was already some stuff swirling around and things. This is the most persistent conspiracy theory surrounding James's death, that he was killed not in some random act of violence, but as payback for Michael's gambling debts, which had been all over the news at the time. In 1992, Michael was court-ordered to testify against James Slim Buhler, a convicted drug dealer. Michael was asked to explain why Buhler had a check for $57,000 with Michael's name on it. At first, he said it was just a business loan. But then, under oath, Michael admitted the money was actually to repay a debt he owed Buhler after a weekend of gambling. And then in 1993, a San Diego businessman wrote a book about gambling addiction prominently featuring Michael. It referenced nearly a million dollars. He said Michael owed him for bets they'd made while playing golf. There seemed to be a lot early on about Michael's gambling debts and his father's gambling debts. In May of 1993, Michael made a now infamous visit to an Atlantic City casino. Typically, this wouldn't be news except that it was during game two of the Eastern Conference Finals, and there was speculation that Michael bet on basketball. The NBA bars players from betting on league games, so they launched an investigation into Michael's gambling habits to see if he had violated any of those rules. And when all this controversy was swirling around Michael and he'd refused to talk to the media, it was James who stuck up for his son. It was James Jordan that said it was his idea. It's so ridiculous that, you know, I can look right back, you know, because it was actually my idea to go to Atlantic City. When James died, all this talk about hanging out with drug dealers and big-ticket sports betting led to speculation that these were connected with the murder, that James's killing was somehow a message to Michael. There were even insinuations that the mafia was somehow involved and that Larry Demery and Daniel Green were just hapless fall guys. It's still a popular theory circling around the internet today. But none of this holds water. For one thing, Michael could likely have paid off any debts he had. And motive aside, the logistics of the killing don't fit any of those theories. Also, there's no evidence to back any of them up. There was a lot of stuff that seemed like it could have been the deal, but uh, there were a lot of stories. Yeah, never, never, nothing ever really seemed to sink into the concrete, really. But keep in mind, back in the 90s, these conspiracy theories weren't confined to some dark corner of the internet. This was playing out on the six o'clock news. So when questions were raised about whether his financial dealings could have had anything to do with his death, people here only. After James's death, the family released a brief public statement. It reads in part, quote, we ask that our friends respect our needs for privacy while we mourn the loss of the head of our family. Most people wouldn't hear Michael speak publicly about his dad's death for another two months during his retirement speech on the basketball court, which also ended the NBA's investigation into his gambling habits. I guess the biggest positive thing that I can take out of uh, you know, my father not being here with me today is that he saw my last basketball game, and that means a lot. 
But the public and the media weren't the only ones who had a hard time getting information out of the Jordans. As the case moved toward trial, it became obvious the prosecution needed the family's cooperation, prompting District Attorney Johnson Britt to reach out. His first contact was with Michael's older brother, Larry, the last person in the family to see their father alive. Britt went to him with questions about his father's jewelry, the watch, and the NBA ring recovered during the investigation. How much is the ring worth? How much is the watch worth? Who made it? When was it given to your dad? Larry's repeated response was, you have to ask the man. You got to talk to the man. And finally, I, I was kind of taken back by that. I said, who do you keep calling the man? He said, oh, you got to talk to Michael. Now, this is Michael's big brother saying, you got to go talk to the man. So how do you get to the man? Britt talked to Michael's people, but he says every time he thought they had come to terms on a meeting date, it was derailed. He felt like he was being put off. Finally, they set a date. December 27, 1995, in Chicago. That's just seven days before the trial was scheduled to begin. It's a snowy, cold, typical Chicago winter day. Britt and several detectives arrive at Michael's office. But Michael isn't there. Instead, Britt, who is in charge of this case, faces a team of Michael's attorneys who start firing off questions at him. Why are y'all here? What are you going to ask him? They wanted to know in advance. And, you know, we need these questions answered. It may be necessary that Michael Jordan come to Lumberton and testify in this case. His lawyers didn't want him to do that. And in a sense, I don't think he wanted to testify. And honestly, neither did Brett. The celebrity status that became attached to this case um, could influence what happened in his mere presence. I believe would have. Finally, Michael shows up at the meeting. And you look outside, it's, there's, the streets are wet because it had snowed, and he pulls up in this black Porsche that doesn't have a spot on it. Suddenly, this figure walks in, and it's Michael Jordan. Britt says things relax a little. Michael is affable, even friendly. They joke about the weather, how harsh Chicago is compared to North Carolina, but after the pleasantries, they get down to business. He's like, you know, am I going to be a witness? And I said, well, you may be. Britt explains to Michael and his attorneys that if he does come to Robinson County to testify, Britt will make sure he is as insulated as possible from the media and the public. He will be escorted in through the back of the building. He'll get on the back elevator which is restricted. He'll come upstairs, get off the elevator, walk in the side entrance of the courtroom, and he'll take the witness stand. And as soon as he finishes, he'll leave the same way, in and out. Britt shows Michael a photo of Daniel Green wearing the watch and NBA ring. Michael identifies all of them, saying yes, these were things he gave his father. He also confirms the Lexus is the one he bought for his dad. The confirmation is good enough for Britt and the defense attorneys, so it's decided Michael won't have to testify. But before he leaves, Britt did have one other thing he wanted from Michael. Do you mind autographing these books? 
I have an autograph book that I kept. I gave each of my children one, and I gave my brother-in-law one, who's probably the biggest uh, Carolina fan in the world. Again, this is the prosecutor, the guy responsible for managing and maintaining fairness in the case. And even he can't escape the allure of Michael Jordan. But of all the people we talked to, Britt might have the most insight of how Michael was feeling about the case. Michael has talked a lot over the last 25 years about his father, about what his father means to him, but he has talked very little about the actual murder of his father and how it has impacted him and his family. Again, Dan Wiederer of the Chicago Tribune. I think there's a, a privacy there that they wanted to keep. Obviously, Michael being the icon that he is and, and the grand spotlight that he comes under, I think they wanted to keep this out of the public eye as much as possible. I think there's a coping mechanism there for a family that has gone through something so grisly and so uncomfortable and so harmful to a family member to try to get their arms around that and get around the emotions that come with that. Talking about James, his life and death, the controversy and the conspiracies, it's not easy. It's a part of the story where we have an abundance of questions and a shortage of answers, and that's really the whole problem. When someone dies, we want closure. We want some way to wrap our head around it, to have the tragedy make sense. But it almost never does. We don't want to believe that someone like James Jordan could die randomly, a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we set our imaginations loose, conjuring up murder-for-hire plots and complex underground schemes, all to explain the unexplainable. It created an atmosphere of distrust around this case that's never really gone away. One of the very few times Michael has spoken publicly about his father's murder was on The Oprah Winfrey Show in 1993, just three weeks after he retired from the NBA. We can't play you that audio, but it's out there if you want to listen to it. In the interview, Oprah asked Michael if he'd ever want to confront those responsible. Does he wonder how or why they would do such a senseless thing? Michael Jordan responds, quote, no, because I don't want to know. It would probably hurt me even more to know their reasons because it would be totally meaningless. It's better that I don't know. For the Jordans, it seems no answer is necessary. And for the public, none will suffice. On the next episode of Follow the Truth. Uh, could you tell me who you are and what the situation is there, please? Uh, my name is Renee Bollinger. I work in advertising and we're still being held hostage. Police in Lumberton needed plenty of backup today as they surrounded the local newspaper building, which had been locked shut by two gunmen. We'll introduce you to the scene of the crime, Robison County, North Carolina. There's a lot more going on than just a random roadside murder of a, you know, basketball superstar's daddy. A place that comes along with a whole lot of baggage. Because of the DNA of the county, because of the, the racial divisions in the county, because of the long-standing history of suspicion in the county of corruption within law enforcement. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
Follow the Truth is written by me, Amanda Lamb, and Cliff Bumgarner. Cliff also produces the show. Shelley Leslie is our executive producer. The show is edited and mixed by Wilson Sayre. Our production manager is Anita Normanly. Original music is by George Hodge and Lee Rosevere. Additional reporting by Clay Johnson, Jay Jennings, and the many other WRAL-TV journalists whose coverage you hear throughout the story. The show is represented by Melinda Morris-Zanoni and Legacy Talent Entertainment, with branding and digital marketing by Capital B Creative. Special thanks to Dave Biesing. This episode uses additional audio from the following organizations, NBC5 Chicago, Gatorade, Haynes, and Nike. Thanks for listening. Your heart, it's the only one you have. Fortunately, you also have a choice. Expert cardiologists, talented surgeons, highly skilled specialists, all of whom chose WakeMed. Why? The main reason is the same reason patients choose WakeMed. Everything you need for the best possible care is right here. Learn more at WakeMed.org. WakeMed Heart and Vascular Physicians. Your heart, your choice. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.